Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Um, we're going to take a look at the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 7. And why don't we give reverence to the word of the Lord. If you would please stand as I read this morning's text. Hebrews chapter 7 beginning now at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that your word not only instructs us and strengthens us and builds us up. But Lord, I just thank you that it's just so plain interesting as well. And we pray that you draw us into the text to feed our souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You probably know of this great person in the Old Testament known of as Abraham, truly one of the greatest men of all of history. And in our home groups, which we're in a home group season right now, we've been studying the life of Abraham. So I think that Abraham is pretty high in the consciousness of this congregation. Well, I want you to consider that this man, Abraham, had a one-time meeting with a remarkable man named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek appears in only three verses of the book of Genesis. And then one other exciting verse in the book of Psalms that we're going to take a look at next week. But these three verses in the book of Genesis, speaking of Melchizedek, actually establish him to be a person who's vitally important. You could say this, that Melchizedek is like a comet that streaks across the sky of the Old Testament. He only appears briefly, but he burns brightly in the three verses that he appears in, in the book of Genesis. And added on top of that, you could think of it another way. Think of Melchizedek to be like one of those characters in a good novel or in a good movie that pops up early in the story. And you think, well, that's kind of insignificant. He's just another minor character in the movie. But later on, it develops that he has a critical place in the development of the story. That's Melchizedek. And so we come taking a look at this man who had this remarkable meeting with Abraham and we come to it this understanding that the writer to the Hebrews is developing a theme. 
It's a theme that he introduced way back in Hebrews chapter 2, where he speaks about Jesus being our high priest. Well, in discussing the idea of Jesus being our high priest, he refers to this man who was another priest of the living God, Melchizedek, mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verses verses, um, 18 through 20. So let's take a look here. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. If you would, keep a finger in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, because we'll be back there. But turn just briefly to Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. We're going to read these three verses that mention Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. Just to set the stage, Abraham, this great patriarch of the people of God, has just defeated a confederation of kings who kidnapped his nephew Lot. And on the way back from that remarkable battle, he meets an even more remarkable man, this man Melchizedek, that we take a look at starting at verse 18 of Genesis chapter 14, reading here. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That's it. Three quick verses. Yet it inspires more than a chapter of the book of Hebrews. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. Let's take a look at just the first few verses of chapter 7 to understand what we know about Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14. Hebrews chapter 7, let me read the first three verses of the text again. He says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. So what do we know about this fellow, Melchizedek, from the pages of the Old Testament and from this text in Hebrews? Well, it's really pretty simple. First of all, and I don't mean to be, you know, obvious here, but we know his name. His name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a name with a meaning. If you break down the ancient words, this is what the name Melchizedek means. King of righteousness. You got to admit, that's a pretty impressive name, don't you think? Could you imagine a politician in modern America having the title King of Righteousness? I can't imagine it either. But Melchizedek had the title and it fit for him. So first of all, you got to admit, that's a very impressive title. King of Righteousness. That's what he tells us in verse 1. But he also tells us something else there in verse 1, that he was the King of Salem. Now, Salem is both a place, it's an early name for the city of Jerusalem, so he was the king of Jerusalem, but Salem also has another connotation. It's associated with the ancient Hebrew word, and you can even say the modern Hebrew word, shalom. So that's why he says here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7 that he's also the king of peace. Now, don't you think there's two pretty impressive titles? King of righteousness. King of peace, but it doesn't even end there. He also says in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7 that he is the priest of God most high. Friends, this just kind of blows my mind. 
Where did Melchizedek get to know about the living God? Who told him? Where did he go to school to be a priest? Who instituted him? Who gave him the great title, King of Righteousness? Who elected him or appointed him to be king of Salem? We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about his ancestors. We don't know anything about his descendants. He just appears as a flash on the pages of the Old Testament. And this remarkable man comes to us as someone who knew and loved and worshipped and even represented as a priest the Most High God. And this is remarkable. Look at how he functioned as a priest in regard to Abraham. First of all, He had a sacred fellowship meal with Abraham. That's what it meant in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, where it says that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to Abraham. They had a sacred fellowship meal. Now, look, you don't have to be a Bible genius to associate the bringing out of bread and wine with what we celebrate in our modern age as the Lord's table, as communion. This was a sacred fellowship meal. So that's the first thing he did. He served as a priest, a sacred fellowship meal to Abraham. Secondly, he blessed Abraham. There he is in sort of a priestly way, almost with hands raised up, because that would be the typical pastor back then. In this place, as a priest, he's saying, I bestow a blessing upon you, Abraham. That's the second priestly thing that he did. And the third priestly thing that he did was he received tithes from Abraham. These uh, gifts, these this giving unto the Lord. Abraham didn't take that whatever he gave and just, you know, bury it in the ground and say, God, it belongs to you. No, he gave it to Melchizedek and he received it as a priest of the most high God. Now, I just need to pause right here and say something. And it's interesting. And might I say for myself, even uncomfortable to consider that God raised up this priest Melchizedek outside the normal channels. There's sort of a normal channel running at this time in the text of Genesis where God made a covenant with Abraham and God was going to deal through the covenant descendants of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and institute his covenant. Okay, God, we got you got your channel. You got your way that you're working in the world. I get it. And then totally outside of all of that, God raises up Melchizedek. And can I say that makes me a little bit uncomfortable? I am much more comfortable if God works in your life just the way he worked in mine. But when God starts working out of what I consider to be regular channels, it can make me a little uncomfortable. But listen, I can't deny it that he sometimes does. Are you aware of a phenomenon, especially in the Muslim world today, where many people, many in the Muslim world are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because at least initiated by a dream in which they see Jesus? And this kind of blows my mind. And might I say, it's sort of out of the ordinary. The New Testament doesn't talk about dream evangelism very much. And I got to say, there's a sense in which it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But yet I think in these countries that are so closed, so blocked off to the gospel, maybe God's just saying, you can't close things to me. I'll find a way around it. And listen, if they're coming to a real relationship with the true Jesus of the Bible, who am I to gainsay it? It's just a remarkable thing. Now, I admit it makes me a little nervous. But listen, if God is moving in a Melchizedek kind of way, listen, it might make us a little bit uncomfortable. But if it's a true move of God, we should be excited about it. Yet when you consider this man, that he's the king of righteousness, that he's also the king of Jerusalem, that he's also the king of peace, that he's also the priest of the most high God, and that his priestly office was both received and respected by the great patriarch Abraham, 
You understand, this is a significant character. In the book of Genesis, even though he appears very briefly, yet there's something even more remarkable. There's something even more striking about this man. And he mentions it here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Notice what it says about him. That he is without father, without mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. Friends, I don't know, if you take that description and make it as plain as possible, you're talking about God. Who else is without father, without mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, made like the Son of God? And this sort of brings up an interesting and sort of one of these things that Christians love to debate within the family. Who exactly was Melchizedek? Was he a remarkable picture of Jesus? Thousands of years before Jesus ever appeared in Bethlehem. Or was Melchizedek an actual appearance of Jesus? Because we understand this, do we not? That Jesus existed before he came as a baby in Bethlehem. He's the eternal son of God. And there are several places in the Old Testament where it seems clear that there is a pre-incarnate appearance of God, the son. And this may very well be just one of those spots. And people love to say, well, Melchizedek was Jesus. No, Melchizedek just looked like Jesus. And I say this, if you take those words from Hebrews chapter seven, verse three, and if you apply them as plainly as literally, I don't think you can say anything other than this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Yet I will allow this. It is possible that the writer to the Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit meant those words only as it concerns the text of the book of Genesis. In other words, as far as we read in the book of Genesis, he has no father and mother. As far as we read in the book of Genesis, he has neither beginning of days nor ends of days. Perhaps that's the case. And so I, for myself, I'll go back every time I study either Genesis or Hebrews, and I'll sort of vacillate between uh, Melchizedek was Jesus, Melchizedek was a picture of Jesus. Melchizedek was Jesus, a picture of Jesus. Today, you've caught me on the day where I say Melchizedek was Jesus. But again, I understand the arguments both way. And ultimately, I don't think it's all that significant other to say at the very, very least, here is a man. Well, just look at those words in verse three. Would you look at them? But made like the son of God. Melchizedek was made like the son of God. And it's using a very strong and suggestive ancient Greek phrasing there. It isn't really that Melchizedek represents the kind of priesthood that Jesus has. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't have Melchizedek's priesthood. Melchizedek has Jesus's kind of priesthood. I like what F.B. Meyer, the old writer, said about this. I think he had some eloquent words regarding this. Notice this quote. He says this. It was as if the father um, could not await the day of his son's priestly entrance within the veil, but must needs anticipate the marvels of his ministry by embodying its leading features in miniature. So there we have this man, Melchizedek, representing Jesus. And it's almost as if the father couldn't wait for the movie of Jesus's life and ministry to take place. He had to send out a trailer before the movie. And Melchizedek is one of those trailers. Actually, the Old Testament is filled with those trailers, are they not? Are they? And they all speak to us collectively of Jesus. And in this sense, notice what it says in verse three. He remains a priest continually. There is something eternal about Melchizedek and about his priesthood, which will be developed in the message we go through next week in the second half of Hebrews chapter seven.
Now let's continue on in verse 4 to break down this idea of how Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Notice this, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have not come from the loins of Abraham, excuse me, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here, the writer of the Hebrews, starting at verse 4 and continuing on, is considering the fact that Abraham, who was the father of all the tribes of Israel, or the ancestor, let's say that, of all the tribes of Israel, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So in a sense, not only does this make Melchizedek greater than Abraham, but it also makes all the descendants of Abraham under Melchizedek because they were all in Abraham, so to speak, genetically. Now, I got to point something out here and spend a little time talking about it. That Abraham's giving to Melchizedek was greater and shows us something very powerfully. And it speaks to us about this big deal that the writer of the Hebrews thinks it was that Abraham gave a tithe. That is 10%. That's just simply what a tithe means. He took this from Abraham and he received it. And therefore, it's good to just look at this subject. And so I want to talk to you about this idea of giving after Abraham's pattern here. Now, modern Christians today like to debate. And this is one of those things that's sort of an in-house debate among believers today. Whether or not the New Testament requires a 10% giving among believers unto their local church or under some kind of ministry. And modern Christians love to debate that issue. And there's different opinions on both sides. Some say this, we're not under the tithe. We just give generously as God leads us to give. That's sort of one side. Then there's another side that says this, God wants us to tithe. He wants that 10% to be a measure of our giving without perhaps restricting it to it, being a measure of our giving, and he blesses those who do so. You know, without going into an in-depth examination of the arguments on both sides, which, by the way, if you're interested in personally, I'd love to talk to you about it personally, or you can text in a question. We'll answer it in the video studio following. But let me just say this. I'm one of those who believes that 10% is a good measure of our giving. And without getting into the whole picture, think about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 says this, that each one should give as he may prosper. In other words, in the context, you can look at it later at 1 Corinthians 16, 2, that it means that you should give in proportion to how you've been blessed. That giving should have a proportional aspect to it. And here's a simple question I ask myself. If our giving is to be proportional, then what proportion? 
And if that proportion of 10% was common in the Old Testament and is mentioned favorably, if perhaps not commanded in the New Testament, then isn't that a good proportion? Let me just say, and I'll just speak personally on behalf of Inga Lil and myself, and if I could, the Guzik household, we have found it to be so. We have found it to be a blessed and a good thing to give 10% of our resources back to God on a regular basis. Now, something else I want you to notice here, and notice this, after the pattern of Abraham, look at what it says in verse 4. It says that he gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. That speaks to the way that we should give this proportion to God. We should give this proportion to God from the top. In other words, not from the leftovers. Isn't that a common way that we do it? And please, friends, I don't want to speak a word of condemnation. I know that this whole idea of economics and finance and all this, some of it's a tremendous challenge to some of us. But I'll give you my basic heart on this. I honestly think that it's important for the church to talk about money and material things, not in terms of give, 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 give. No, no, no. In the terms of discipleship. Because is not money and material things a critical issue of discipleship in our world today? Absolutely it is. And so listen, when I speak to you about these things, I think it's important to say that whatever proportion a believer decides to give unto God, Whatever proportion a a, a husband and a wife prayerfully decide and say, we're going to dedicate this proportion unto God. And I'm saying whether they decided to be 2% or 5% or 10%, I would say this, give it to God off the top. Don't give them your leftovers because you know how that works. If you send all the money out every month and decide what's left over, how much of it you'll give unto the Lord, how's that going to work? And... Does that really honor the Lord? You see, it says here in verse four that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils and spoils there literally in the ancient language is the top of the heap. It's referring to the choice of spoils of war. When Abraham tied to Melchizedek, he literally took it off of the top. Now, there's also this other issue that people like to talk about, and I think it's a legitimate issue to talk about. Let's say a person does say, yes, God, I'm going to give to you proportionally. I believe this is what your word commands. Then where do you give that proportion? Because, look, let's face it. There are many wonderful and valid charitable concerns that a person can invest their resources for God's kingdom and good in this world. There really are. In some regard, they're tied to be their charitable giving of any sort. But let me say this. The Bible does say that there should be an emphasis in our giving on the ministries that feed us spiritually. And this is most clearly seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 14, if you want to look it up. It's where Paul says that it is appropriate to support with material things those who give unto you spiritual things. And by the way, if I could say this is exactly seen by what Abraham did here with Melchizedek. Melchizedek gave unto Abraham spiritual things, a blessing, a sacred meal of wine and bread. Melchizedek gave unto Abraham spiritual things and Abraham returned back with material things. In other words, when Abraham gave his tithe, he gave it first to those who understood and ministered unto him with spiritual things. Now, the way that some Christians work this out, and I'm just going to say the way that some work this out 
is they commit 10% to their local church and they consider that their tithe. Then whatever they might give above that, they consider to be a sacrificial offering and they would give it to whatever charitable works or special works that God might call them to. Now, let me say, I want to be very upfront with you on this point. I don't think I see that detailed precisely enough in scripture to make it a command. But I think as a general principle, it's something that the Holy Spirit will speak to each individual heart about. I don't think it's enough to make it a clear command. But I do think when I say clear command, 10% to your local church and whatever you give beyond that, wherever you please. I don't see enough to make that an absolute command, but I do see enough to say it's a correct in principle. And let me give a few final thoughts about giving before we return to this text here. You know, whenever I talk about giving, I think it's very important to establish this principle from the New Testament and even from all the Bible is the reason for our giving. Fundamentally, the reason for our giving is not for the sake of the church. It's not fundamentally to say, well, bills got to be paid. So on and so forth. There's expenses, there's budgets to meet. Fundamentally, the reason why we give is not for the sake of the church. I'll speak for myself. I give because I need to give. I need to be a giver. God is a giver. And I think that we're being transformed into the image of his son. We will also be givers. And I believe that there's something very powerfully that works practically, but also spiritually, that when we give the way the Holy Spirit wants us to give, it's almost like an inoculation in us spiritually against the materialism and against the money worship of our present age. Friends, I'm grieved about this. I'm grieved about people, and I hope this doesn't sound over dramatic to you. I don't know how to say it less dramatic, but I'm grieved about the thought that there are people in our culture who will go to hell because they love material things more than God. Is this not the culture we live in? And how are we going to protect ourselves against that? I believe we protect ourselves against it fundamentally by saying, Lord, I'm going to give the way that your word tells me and your spirit directs me. So we need to give as a protection against materialism. But not only that, we also need to readjust our whole mentality to protect ourselves against this strange thinking that somehow we're going to give too much to God. Isn't that a strange thought that comes around? As if God will say, ha, you gave more than you needed to, you lose. (laughs) Friends, I almost think that when we give the way the Holy Spirit tells us to, that there's something that rises up with God that's like a challenge. And he says, I'm going to show you, my child, that you cannot outgive me. That I will bless you. And just look for me. And I'm not saying it's necessarily that he'll return unto you materially, although I've seen God bless and sustain those who honor him. But let me just say this. I believe that God will make it very well plain that you cannot outgive him, that you honor him with what you have and he will honor you and bless you. But then finally, I just think about people who have a very hard time with this. And you know what? If you do, I, I'm sorry. My heart goes out to you. I think about a pastor that I know who one time was speaking on this. As a matter of fact, I know this particular pastor, and he likes to speak on this theme a lot. Frankly, more than I like to speak on it, but I speak on it when the text brings it to me. But he likes to speak on this theme a lot. And so he was speaking on this idea of how important it is for us to give in proportion to how we've been blessed. 
Well, there was someone who did not want to hear that, and they did not want to hear about 10%. They did not want to hear about a tie. They didn't want to hear about any of that stuff. And they came up, and they were quite argumentative with the pastor afterwards. And they argued, and they debated, and afterwards, and finally the pastor just settled it with this, with a great big smile on his face. This is what he said to them. He said, well, my brothers, if you will not give according to how you have been blessed, then may you be blessed according to how you give. Wow. Now, that's a different way to look at it, isn't it? I didn't say that, but a pastor I know didn't. If you want to know who it is, come up and ask me afterwards. (laughs) Now, look, there's no doubt about it. Abraham tithed unto Melchizedek. And that was important, especially because the way the writer of the Hebrews approaches it, look at here it again in verse nine. He says, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Under the present system of Judaism, the people of Israel paid tithes to the Levites and through the Levites to the priesthood of Aaron. Now. The writer of the Hebrews is making the argument that the descendants of Levi themselves paid tithes unto Abraham genetically, so to speak, through Abraham. I like that word he uses in verse nine, so to speak. He understands that he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking allegorically here, but it's a very important principle to grab a hold of. But notice this, what he says in verse seven. And I think this is the key point in this section that the lesser is blessed by the greater. This principle also shows that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because he blessed Abraham. On his part, Abraham accepted this blessing from Melchizedek, and he accepted the fact that there was at least a sense in which Melchizedek was greater than Abraham when he received that blessing. And so that's a very significant thing that the writer of the Hebrews will tease out in greater detail as we'll take a look in the text that comes to us next. Next week, I want to conclude here our text this morning. And again, I feel like we're stopping right in the middle because we are stopping right in the middle. But we'll pick it up more next week. More about Melchizedek. You're going to know more about Melchizedek than you ever wanted to know about Melchizedek. Look, let me say this. Conclude with two final points here. First of all, I want you to think about this great idea that we find in the first few verses of the of the chapter. These two titles, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, those are two wonderful titles, don't you believe? But I want you to know that they are given in a specific order. First, it is the king of righteousness. Then it is the king of peace. I know many people who want Jesus to reign over their life as the king of peace. And that's a good thing. I don't blame you for that at all. You're uh, discouraged with the emptiness that there is in the way that this world lives. You're discouraged with the party atmosphere. You're discouraged with making an idol out of success. You're discouraged with looking for things in the wrong places and all the rest of it. You're discouraged with that. And what you want is you want a break from the conflict. You want a break from the tumult. What you want is you want Jesus to reign as the king of peace in your life. And I don't blame you for that at all. And I hope that Jesus gives you that peace. But may I say something to you first? Before he's the king of peace... First, he's the king of righteousness. And the king of righteousness means that he reigned from a very curious throne. He reigned as a king of righteousness, so to speak, from the cross. 
Because that's where he delivered the righteousness of God to all those who put their faith in Jesus. You see, on the cross, Jesus became not only the victim of God, the father's wrath, bearing within him all the the sin and guilt and shame that came from us. But he delivers unto us the righteousness of God. That he who knew no sin might become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I guess this is what I'm saying to you. If you want to know Jesus this morning, first know him as the king of righteousness, coming to him through the cross. Then you can know him as the king of peace. And I think that's a beautiful order indicated to us by this. Secondly, actually, it's a pretty short thought. I don't even need to develop that much. I want you to picture in your mind. This is how I picture it. I see in my mind's eye Melchizedek standing up over noble patriarch Abraham and blessing noble patriarch Abraham, pronouncing a blessing over him in the name of the most high God. And isn't that a beautiful picture? And then I let the scene morph in my mind. And I think of Jesus, my high priest, standing over me, standing over you with arms upraised in blessing. And he is bestowing a blessing upon us. Don't you want that? Don't you want Jesus to be your high priest and to be your priest over you? This is what you need to do. First of all, connect with Jesus in the sacred meal that he offers. In just a few minutes in our service, we're going to pass out the bread and the cup where just as Melchizedek served it to Abraham. Now Jesus serves it to you. And he says, come meet with me on the basis of the sacred meal that remembers what I did for you on the cross. Just as Melchizedek did it for Abraham, Jesus is going to do it for us this morning. That's one. Connect with him in the sacred meal. Secondly, pay your tithes unto Jesus. Give unto him. Abraham did it to Melchizedek. We should do it unto Jesus. And then number three, receive the blessing. Abraham humbled himself to receive a blessing from Jesus. Would you please receive it from him now? And you say, well, I'm not worthy. You you don't know how bad I was this week. You don't know how bad I was last night. Well, listen, receiving this blessing from Jesus doesn't depend on your worthiness. Why don't you repent of whatever it is that puts you in puts an obstacle in the way of you receiving that blessing and then just come and receive it by faith. But here is your priest with his hands outstretched over you, wanting you to receive a blessing from him. Would you receive it from him? Father, that's my prayer. I believe that you want this for every person here. I can't believe that there's a single person here that you don't want to bless. But Lord, I pray that those who are are blocking the power and the presence of your blessing by unresolved sin, by a rebellious heart, by unbelief, that Lord, by your grace, you'd help them to put all of that away right now and simply come to you, our high priest, our Melchizedek, And say, Jesus, we believe the blessing that you bestow upon us. So help us now, Jesus. Help us now as we worship you, as we prepare our hearts for this sacrificial meal that you will bring unto us. Please, Lord, we're ready and we believe that you are ready. Come and bless your people. 
In Jesus' name, amen.